Welcome to the Carmen Murray Show, where we want to dive deep into the intersection of politics today and also technology in the upcoming elections around the globe and what we all need to be conscious about in the time of misinformation and deep fake. How can businesses and technology companies be more alert, especially now after this explosion of AI? I'm your host, Carmen Murray, and joining me today is my friend and trend analyst, Bronwyn Williams. We're turning our attention to the diverse array of elections scheduled for 2024, particularly focusing on the African continent. From the Algerian presidential election to the South African general elections, not to mention that we have the United States um, that will have their elections and many more in between, numerous countries are gearing up for significant political events. Needless to say about all the wars that are happening in the world, that there's also many political agendas there. But as we enter this pivotal year, we find ourselves in this trustopia, a time where trust in politicians is at an all-time low, Political instability is widespread and the urgent conversation on misinformation takes center stage. In this episode, we'll be addressing critical questions about the state of democracy in the face of these challenges. Why is there a growing lack of trust in political figures? I don't think we all need to ask why, but we are going to pose that question because how do political instabilities impact the democratic process and what role does misinformation play in all of this? But that's not all. (laughs) We are also going to explore the role of technology in these elections. As we witness the rise of deepfake technology, how might it impact the authenticity of political discourse? And what can technology companies do to safeguard the democratic process and combat the spread of misinformation? Apathy tends to rule when hope is scarce. How can we inspire hope? rebuild trust and ensure the integrity of our democratic system. So fasten your seatbelts. We are about to take off into the heart of elections, misinformation and the technology that shapes our political landscape. Bronwyn, a warm welcome. Tough topic. <laughs> hey, no, 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 nothing small about what you just put in the intro there, right? <laughs> I know. I'm Like I said, we're going to go big today. And I know we can, I can always throw questions at you you always have an answer and a researched answer because that's what you do you monitor trends and I'm thrilled to have you here today so the reason I I decided to do to do this um, interview was during the municipality elections I was approached to do netnography uh, for the citizen and it exploded all over and they didn't believe that you can actually predict the elections just through netnography and we got it right with an 80% accuracy. But in that journey of monitoring everything, I saw all the misinformation. I saw, um, especially, you know, things being taken from different countries and how it's being repurposed to make it seem like it's happening here. As technology has now evolved so much like we've never seen before, you know, we can't underestimate the grit of politicians. Um, one of the other things that I saw in my research is how these bots, how they train these bots and they make them befriend you and speak the relevant content all the time until they build up a credibility with that bot and that it has enough followers. And then when the election comes, those get activated and they've actually picked it up through Benford's Law, which I'm sure that you're very much familiar with. So what is your take? What, you know, if we look at the various African countries and globally, we can find ourselves in this time of trustopia. What is your view 
um, on the growing lack of trust in politicians and how might it impact the upcoming elections? Yeah, well, I think the main thing we see when it look, comes to lack of trust in politicians is more than that. It's lack of trust in the systems that politicians are a part of, right? So, I mean, like we see this in the democracy backsliding statistics. So I think it's, what, the seventh year in a row now that democracy has been in decline globally since they started tracking it in, like, hmm. the 1970s. And people are losing faith of the idea of democracy. And I have some thoughts as to why that is. That's, I think, because many of us have a inaccurate understanding of what democracy is. We seem to think democracy is a government that does what we want, whereas democracy is actually ruled by the people for the people, which means that democracy is a verb, you know, it's not just a noun. You don't live in a democracy, you live a democracy, right? And because we've sort of taken this this perspective of being, um, instead of being citizens in our states, as rather being sort of like consumers of a, of a state, which is a very much part of the sort of capitalist mindset mm. we have, democracy is unsurprisingly not working for many people. So they think, or they tend to think that perhaps authoritarian ideas would be more acceptable. And this is particularly concerning when we look at young people and the fact that Africa has more young people than old people. Younger people are skewing in their political leanings ethno-nationalist and populist and authoritarian. These are very dangerous threads. I mean, like this, this is what brought us World War II. This is not a good space to be in, but it is, can be seen as being quite reactionary to a system that's not working for them, that we don't necessarily, those people don't necessarily understand why the system's not working and who the enemy is and what the enemy is. So the heuristic is when you're looking outside and you're not able to sort of gain traction and get influence and get things fixed in your country, that perhaps it's not just the people, it's the system too, right? Maybe democracy is the problem. So let's try something else. Mm. And there's ways that we try something else. It's either by voting, as I said, more populist or more authoritarian. In other words, voting away your rights to democracy or by not voting at all. And of course, youth vote to apathy. South Africa is first of class there again. We were in the leaderboard of all sorts of things. We shouldn't be there. <laughs> youth vote to apathy. We were a leading indicator of the global trend. Globally, young people are not choosing to vote. They're like, what's the point of voting? We can use America because we South Africans. We can talk about America without being too political. They're like, why should I vote for either of these geriatric old men who are old enough to be my father's grandfather? You know, like, why should I vote? <laughs> what has my vote got to do with anything? And that's a valid perception, but it's also a flawed perception because by not voting, you're effectively giving twice the weight of everybody who does vote, vote, vote. And that's very dangerous when we also compare that, with, as I said, that trend towards the populist authoritarian spectrum, right? So that means for everybody that's apathetic and not signing up to vote, there's more propensity that the people are being, who are being more radical towards their authoritarian tendencies get an outsized sway in the elections. And that's why when you're combining threads of anarchy, of disruption, of dissatisfaction with apathy, with rises of populism, you end up with a very precarious sort of political melting pot. And particularly, as I said, in countries where the youth vote actually matters. The youth vote does matter in Africa because you've got a lot of young people who are able to vote. Globally, as much as young people have the same challenges, they don't have the same weight, very literally, because globally, more people are over the age of 35 than under the age of 35. So if you are living in America or Europe and you're a young person that feels like your vote doesn't count, well, that's just because there's more old people voting, right? And, and they're living older, longer too, which, which uh, adds to sort of intergenerational tensions that we're seeing there too. So there's a whole lot of mess that's sort of unraveling at the moment. But Africa is where I'd definitely be keeping my eye on things because that's where the youth actually 
actually have a say in terms of actually influencing what happens. And if those sort of trains, those twin trains of apathy and authoritarianism, how they interplay and which sort of side wins out can have quite destabilizing effects on our, on our sort of regional politics and global politics. You know, it's fascinating to listen to that in such an interesting perspective. You see, I told you, you're going to have an answer to this. <laughs> Don't have to worry. <laughs> um, when I, I listened to this, I remember during the elections, one of the things that came up was um, this conversation around the middle class. One thing that I've learned during uh, the ethnography with the, you know, with the elections was people that were also political reporters were talking about um, this whole concept that focuses on the middle class. Because if you can paralyze the middle class, that's how they're going to win and, and get their, their, their uh, agendas on the table. Revolution, yeah. particularly nasty revolutions that have like bad consequences, are, as you said, generally spearheaded by the disenfranchised or falling middle class. We should pay a lot of attention to that in the post-COVID era because the soft underbellies, as I've said, of society, those middle classes mm. are exactly who are feeling the pain right now with increasing interest rates, losing their houses here in South Africa because of bank rates that have been inflated thanks to foreign economic policy and local political failures. This is a dangerous class because this is a class that has enough to fear losing it. And this is something that, as you say, social analysts and political analysts don't always get right, particularly since the social analyst class tends to be quite wealthy and within the comfortable middle class, the middle class plus sort of structure, the Zoom class, not the marginal middle class that's actually got more people in it. And that's when people feel like they're losing something. That's when they get violently angry and for good reason, right? The other thing is the people that are actually oppressed, people that are like literally living on social grants, people who are living below the poverty line, don't have enough capacity or excess in their day or time because they're struggling to survive to actually organize for revolutions. This is something that you see time and time again in times of political mm -hmm. turmoil. It's only the, the classes that have either something to lose or have enough resources to plot and scheme that actually sort of turn the wheels of history. And this is, this is very unfair because we tend to think, oh no, look at all the poor people, look at all unemployed people. We should be afraid of them. Absolutely not. We should be helping them. Absolutely. Because they are our future unless we sort of build the whole economy. But that's not where the political threat comes from. The political threat comes from people that have a sense of falling, a sense of expectations being less than the reality they have or the reality that they've worked for. Loss is a very, very powerful emotion. And that's, again, when we can kind of see the sort of shift again to authoritarianism, not just among middle class people around Generation Z, all of whom kind of thought they should be getting a bigger slice of today's pie than what they have. But also you can see the gender split among young people in particular in politics, where young women are leaning more liberal and young men are leaning more authoritarian right. Because young men are the, are the people who have lost power and privilege in the Western society. And that's a Western point. That's not an African point. Uh, and the African point is more the, the apathy versus authoritarian question. But the, from the Western world, where, where we know the sort of conversations that have been had around gender and flattening those inequalities between the genders, what, what it's meant is that you have a group that's lost power, relatively speaking. And that's the group that becomes reactionary against your system. So always look for the reactionaries. Always look for the people who are losing. Mm. And they might yeah. The biggest group, but that's the, that's the group that, that can catalyze things. Remember, history is the sum total of all of our choices as it moves ahead, but generally changes come from small groups 
but organize together and act. They don't come from the complacent masses. And what's your view on the moral panic? Which one? There's so many moral panics. Pick one. <laughs> um, I think the moral panic with this, you know, everybody wants to fit in and everybody has their own view on how they want to want to fit in and their needs met. And sometimes, you know, society is also telling us how to live. Um, is it ethical? I don't know. Um, but the moral panic that we are seeing around economies and how we're seeing it around work, how we're seeing it around the system. I mean, um, there is very much um, from the research that we have done that we are looking very intently at um, is how people are really starting to look at money very differently um, and really want to say, okay, right, it's the, the, just living for money and being in the cycle all the time is not working for me. I need to completely reinvent the wheel. Um, if we look at the research that we've done, people are about finding their purpose. If we look at Google Trends, just go into Google Trends and look at purpose and then compare it to brand purpose or political purpose or look at the search terms that's been used there. Um, it's like all of these organizations and institutions are not focused on purpose. Um, they're really not driving that message home and not implementing it. You know, words have become very empty. I would almost hazard a, a guess. It's probably going to contradict uh, your research and what, what you <laughs> I am claiming that we are past peak purpose, both in terms of a brand level and in terms of an individual level. What I noticed in the last, and I'm talking weeks, not months, is a shift from ESG thinking and uh, a lean towards socialism you know, like that, that was the tendency of the millennial generation and Gen Z adopted it and they all claim to be anti-capitalist, but much like being anti-democracy, they don't actually know what the word means. So they just, it sounds good to be anti-capitalist. But when you sit down and ask them what they want out of life, I want stuff for me. I think like zero sum games. I'd like to be very, very rich and I want all the Stanley Cups in all the colors. They're not actually wanting to be socialist. It just sounds cool to say that you are socialist, right? Like what they actually want and how their behavior works is much more me, 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 greed is good, big is back. Absolutely. Mob wife aesthetic is all cool on TikTok. It's not clean girls anymore. This is all in the last couple of weeks. And those seem like silly signals, but there's deeper research that comes out of this too. There's quite a big study that goes on and they, they talk to investors about how they plan to invest. And we all know you're you in marketing, you're a market researcher. You know that people always lie to survey organizers, right? You say, I'm only going to support oh, yeah. with a purpose, but then you get to pick and pay and you take the cheapest tin. You have, you're, not, you're not Googling to see, you know, whether Coup or Unilever or whoever is, you know, actually purposeful or not. You just, you get, you get there and your, your intentions don't necessarily match your actions. And usually in these surveys, at least historically, people have, whether they've, whether they've lied intentionally or unintentionally, most of the investors are particularly younger ones, young one, the millennial, generation Z, so sort of 40 to 18 year old investors are saying, I plan to invest in ESG stocks. I plan to invest in stocks that have a purpose, are sustainable socially and economically. I plan to invest for good. And whether or not they actually did that when they sat down with their financial advisor and actually chose to buy things, you know, whether they, whether they kidded themselves or whether those, those intentions actually followed mm. into action is irrelevant because what happened last year, the last quarter of last year when they did the survey, the trend broke. People stopped even telling the survey directors that they plan to invest for good. They just said, I'm going to invest for money. There's been this shift towards, as the financial mm -hmm. times discussed it, zero sum thinking. Zero-sum thinking is yeah. false belief that the only way to get ahead is by taking from someone else. 
that the only way you win yeah. is by me losing, right? That's a, that's a zero sum thinking or adversarial thinking is the better term, but we commonly say zero sum when we talk about these things. But in reality, that's not the way it is. In the reality, if I trade with you, like we're trading time right now, it's not like you winning because you got me on your show and I'm losing or I'm winning because I got to be on your show. We both, we both getting value out of this conversation. There are many experiences economically and socially that are not adversarial games. When we start believing the world will mm. adversarial games, we start to behave more selfishly. And that is the shift I've noticed. Yeah. The shift towards selfishness is a shift towards like 80s style thinking. Greed is good. Gordon Gecko, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. The bigger, the bigger the hair, the closer to God, big clothes, fur coats are back. Oh my God. Animals, you know, like that. When, when was the last time you saw someone wearing fur in public? I mean, it was so declassé. It was like, even like, hit well, Chloe Kardashian. Chloe <laughs> Kardashian, but it was fake fur. You hit the real ones. It was too embarrassing. Now this year, it's like big and bold, you know, like it's cool, you know, whatever. We, it's all about me. It's all about excess, yeah. about this, which is a shift. And I think this is interesting because What's the distinction when you start looking into generational cohorts? And I know you get lots of pushback for generational cohorts, but with flux trains and my work, we say there's something in this. And there's something in this because people, if there mm-hmm. wasn't something in it, people's life cycles would, would, would mirror. You know, like when, when 30-year-olds today kind of think like 30-year-olds yesterday, think like 30-year-olds 30 years before. That kind of plays out, but there's something broke with the millennial generation. It's like oh, but people around about our age, you and me, we kind of in that group. The millennial generation, very strangely, unlike previous generational cohorts, has not become more right-wing in their economic policy or more selfish, if you want to put it that way, or more free market in their economic leanings as we've got older. In fact, we've become more left-leaning. And we've kind of expected, because that's what we do, we kind of think that other people think the way we do, we kind of thought that trend was going to continue with Generation Z. But we were wrong, because we were looking at their social liberalism, not at their economic liberalism. Mm. They've only now started placing their actual bets in the market by being economic participants. And the nice thing with economic sort of revealed preference is we can see it in the numbers. And now that Generation Z is actually voting with their wallets, they are voting in that sense. Just like, as I said, actually, you know, quite a lot of, especially the young men are voting, voting more in that direction socially. But economically speaking, they are voting for more zero-sum game, adversarial thinking kind of processes. And they are saying they want to be rich at all costs. They're not saying they want a more socialist future. So this is where millennials have to kind of grow up and understand that the kids after us are not going to be the same as us. They're not following. Mm. In fact, we were probably the anomaly. And the sort of march towards more globalist liberalism is not something that is defined. And in fact, it can be seen as an anomaly, like so many of the things that we take for granted, all these systems that we have around us, right? Even the ideas of globalism, as you said, there's wars all over the place, right? We're challenging these, these things. We're challenging these things that we've taken for granted. We thought were trends that would just continue, which most generations do, by the way. But we kind of getting to that mm. age. We're the age that holds the most, most space in the online discourse. And we think we're right. We think we're right because we're listening to what people say, but not necessarily watching what people do. And I think that that's something yeah. to be cognizant of. And it's something that from a, from a political sense can be quite disruptive and quite dangerous. 
And for mm. many economic sense, it could either mean more sort of economic growth or it could mean increases in inequality. The questions are, is this feeding inequality or is this a response to inequality? Because for every action is a reaction. If you look at bad behavior in your children or good behavior in your children, you have to see what behavior has been rewarded and been reinforced. What is the market reinforced? What is society reinforced? What are we actually rewarding? And then we have to look at ourselves because we reward the biggest all the time. You know, we, we listen to music because everybody else does, not because we necessarily like it. You know, we, we do things because other people do things. I mentioned stupid Stanley cups last year. It was the prime juice. You know, nobody needs the stuff, but people do it with these sort of mimetic creatures, right? So, you know, we've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to be a little bit realistic about the future that we're heading into now and how in Africa, even if not so much in the West, these young people that are not thinking along the same lines that our generation was thinking are going to step up and have a very large say in our future, either through apathy or through anarchy or through pushing through their views on authoritarianism. We have to listen to them because they outnumber us. We are seeing, well, we, we've been seeing the same thing. So it, it thrills me to hear that. I think from my perspective, where, where things are, are truly shifting is because we're going into the communities. We are doing research Very on the ground. Um, what people say, not what yeah. they should say or they should be saying. Like the World no. Forum set is so divorced from what people are saying on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> but also we, we learn through psychology what people say is usually the first thing that they say is usually the opposite. So it's also to, to interrogate those things and to really ask the, ask the questions, but also to go into the communities of these specific groups that, you know, you identify and observing and doing what they tell you to do or doing as they lead you and seeing, you know, what the action points are behind that. And I think that's where you start seeing how it very much is this. It's like the world is, is going internal. Like they're not telling you what they're thinking because everybody's is following and tracking your eyeballs and people are tracking everything about you and some people don't care about it and others do and the people that are waking up and the people are seeing what's going on they're going you know what the world out there i can't fix all the mess that's out there i can fix myself so let me start with that and then once that process starts, there's this huge, you know, like the cutlass stages and you just see all of the apathy and how people going in and out with their emotions. And, you know, the four things that we're going to need to see, and this is for the conscious leaders, we started a community um, because we really want to start having these vital conversations um, of all, all elements from political all the way to social and bring change. I don't want to talk about stuff anymore. I want to see things change. But in order to, to make those things change, you need to have a very much in-depth understanding. So people don't want information anymore. They want wisdom. They want knowledge. And this, for me, is where things are, are truly starting to shift. And we need emotional intelligence. We need, um, you know, uh, uh, foresight intelligence. We do need spiritual intelligence um, to lead the way forward. But also the critical thinking skills in order to unpack that. But most importantly, especially here, is cultural intelligence. Um, I don't feel that we, we know enough about each other's cultures. Yeah. And, and this is where it gets back to politics because of, you know, we are fed the wrong information, um, ad political agendas, rather than actually really understanding the issues from, that we all are facing in this country. 
You know what I mean? I'm going to interrupt you for a second because it sort of ties together mm. two things that we say. Like what we are saying is that the world's not working for a lot of people, particularly young people. Mm -hmm. And you can get stuck into different holding patterns, kind of like the whole Christmas experience. You can get stuck in yeah. moralism, in apathy, in destruction, and in self-destruction when mm -hmm. you go through a period of reflection in, in going inward. So one way of going inward is becoming more selfish, as I'm saying, like indulging in exactly <laughs> leaning into the system rather than leaning out. But that means you haven't sort of completed the process or it's evolving through that, mm -hmm. right? So sort of pushing through the darkness and out on the other side, doing the work. Love it. And that's the difference between evolution. In other words, using young dynamic thinking and using pain, and using discomfort to evolve and revolution, which is much more destructive, but much easier to grasp hold of. Because if we're not doing a good job of showing that you need to push through the pain and the dark and the yes. things and do the hard work to evolve, to level up, to get to the next level of whatever humanity can be, you know, then we get stuck into destructive revolution. And that's the, that's the danger. And that's something that a lot of like people our age and older are saying like, you know, you're looking, you're looking to the youth to fix themselves rather than seeing that you actually have work to do to, to lead. And that's the thing. We are missing leaders. We don't, we have this huge leadership vacuum in organizations. Mm -hmm. Some of this is due to bureaucracy. Some of this is due to automation. It's actually automated away some of the, the ladders in organizations, you know, your career ladders. So you lots of juniors and lots of senior people up there, but no way to get there because there's no way to get the experience and the technology to like actually progress, right? There's sort of chasm there. So you don't have this sort of way to evolve and way to gradually accumulate power and wisdom within your society, you kind of get yourself protracted and then what do they call us weighted or protracted adolescence where you don't get given the resources you need to become an independent adult. That's at a nuclear level, but a societal level, it means you don't get the resources to become independent adults in your society, in other words, for your generation to start seeing its mm. society. So there's work to be done with older people too. It's not a young people problem. Oh, yes. It's a reaction to us. You know, and that's the, yeah. and the work, as you say, is to, is to see this is not working, but this purpose is not working. This job I do is a charade. I'm like a part of this rat race. I've seen the emperor behind the curtain. This is all stupid. Why are we all playing at work when none of this matters? You know, you can, you can fall into nihilism and also just to like, oh, well, I might as well play the game. I might as well be part of the problem. I might as well exploit the system. Although, although I know it's stupid. Or as you said, you can evolve. You can, you can do that, yeah. that soul reckoning and use it. You know, to, to I love that, but that's not necessarily what's going to happen. And you know, that's much harder than just you know being part of the. Oh yes, I love what you're saying because you know this is is, is like dancing with the dark side. You know, I mean, something that I'm that I'm loving to see within these communities that we that we've seen is like um, how people are really diving into pain. Um, diving into, into making very big decisions in their lives that they know is going to disrupt their lives for, forever. And then they just take it all on. Um, I think from a, from a, uh, let's just get into this conversation while we add it. But I think also, um, going through perimenopause, there's definitely also a shift within the way I view the world has completely changed. Um, and it's like every structure in my life has completely fallen down and I have had to lay down the foundation. But the thing is, as you said, inward journey 
can become very selfish if you only focus on yourself. At some point, you need to lean into what is outside. You know, you have to be audacious inside out. You can't just um, choose the inside world only, um, which, you know, for us as women, um, and I, men's organs are external. They run the physical world out there. Women, they've their organs, uh, their sexual organs are internal. They create, and the, even how complexity of our bodies, everything happens from the inside. Um, so we internalize things a lot more. So we need to really um, also think of how we can brave up, you know, yeah. and make bold decisions, bold moves. As much as women might still feel that we, there's gender pay gaps and wage gaps, and we're like in some, we have this mental block in some way that we are still the, the lesser sex or seen as the lesser sex by society. So you still have that inferiority or, or no, inferiority kind of is the wrong way to put it. That sense that the world sees you as inferior. So let's just make that sort of implicit. Mm. Like women do still feel like they are glass ceilings everywhere, but Women also need to understand right now that when it comes to power, when it comes to uh, who controls the messaging that we're getting out there, who controls the way the world works, women have actually taken over some of those key roles there, especially in the developed world. Oh, yeah. Because a bit of an anomaly there, but not that much. As soon as you see birth control starts getting in there, women get access to education, women get out-educate men. You know, we have more women graduating, <laughs> not going to college altogether. You know, like women are taking over and that pipeline takes a while. Of course, it takes a while, but there are more women going through it now and getting PhDs, more, more women getting BAs, more women mm. into management positions. The male pipeline, even though they still sort of, you know, like stuck at the top there, like your Trumps and Bidens, your elderly geriatric men at the very tops of the pyramids. You have to understand that women are ascending now as much as men are yeah. not ascending at the same rate. And you can follow the trend. And it's frustrating if you're in our sort of age cohort and you still feel like, ah, oh, it's so far to go. But actually, we have to understand that in many senses, in the corporate world and in the political world, just due to who gets the sort of jobs and what sort of education you need to influence the media, to influence politics, influence business, is increasingly going to be shaped by females. And that means that we have to step into that with a sense mm -hmm. of not a sense of inferiority, not in, not a sense of being of of, of a, no chips on our shoulders, right? I mean, you can't lead when you're coming from that perspective. You can only lead, as you know, when you claim that space, right? And that's a that's something that our generation is going to have to figure out. You know, this is like this is oh. like when we get what we want, do we are we ready for it, right? And are we ready to take that space and and own that space rather than sort of still try and protect ourselves and defend ourselves and prevent other women from getting into our spaces that are younger than us? You know, to make sure that we got we got what we 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 fought our way here. You know, but you know, like oh, it's too risky to bring more people in. What if there's not enough seats at the table? That whole scarcity mindset is so destructive. I mean, economics too. Yeah, degrowth mindsets scarcity mindsets redistribution mindsets they're so limiting it's more about how do we grow together kind of thing but anyway i do think that's a challenge for women as we as the future does become more feminized in terms of the 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 power people hold not just financially and of course financial is mm. going to take a lot longer to to cure but that's also like a lot of nature's fault right you know like we can't we can't blame men for everything nature's also mother nature also dealt us a few more difficult cards when it comes to accumulate you know like like economic control over things you have to sort of overcome and overcompensate for but that's like a whole different conversation but the point is that women are influencing look at the look at how the eu 
like parliament is mm. and who's in charge there, right? I mean, it's much more sort of gender, gender equal. Africa's getting there. But again, it's those pipelines. What you see those sort of demographic trends, who's graduating, who's getting the jobs, you know, it is going to be a, a female future, but um, from, from those positions, but uh, how we, what are we, how are we going to work together? How are we going to, how are we going to use that, that energy? that uh, that yeah mountain. if i look at technology companies um you know um i personally feel for the next um eight months or even longer we're gonna have to really focus on what's happening in the space of misinformation what proactiveness can happen um to minimize the misinformation where's the blockchain can we can we start implementing uh, different types of technologies that can help us but i mean what is what is your view on where where um, organizations and businesses perhaps can get involved into help fact-checking. Well, here's, um, here's a point that I've been thinking about quite a lot, and that is that we can't actually first fix mis- and disinformation with technology. What we instead need to do is to start educating our children and everyone, our parents too. In fact, our parents are probably the worst. Our boomer parents that just like have got been adopted into the internet without being sort of brought up with all the understanding, all the nuances of this new habitat and how to survive mm. in it. But it's understanding and having a baseline understanding that nothing digital is a source of truth. Blockchains can't fix this because blockchains still have on programs. Mm. And if the source code or that first chain link contains a mistruth and then we build upon that. That's true. You can't stop that because always there's some input. You know, there's some sensor that's putting data in that could be manipulated, whether it's an automated sensor, whether it's a human sensor. We need to get over this idea that technology is smarter, or is more, is more mm. truthful than humans. It can be smarter. It can be faster. It can do all these things more efficiently. But what we have spent the last probably 50 years doing is trying to convince, again, our boomer-aged parents that technology is much more accurate than people, that technology should be trusted over a face-to-face human. But you with like banks, right? You used to go and, and you say you want to buy a house or start a business. You could sit down with your banker. Your banker would suss you out and say, I don't trust you. Go try next door. Uh, it didn't matter what papers you brought, right? I mean, like, what's the greatest showman? See the, see the nonsense that went on there, right? Or you sit down and they, they say, I trust you. I believe in you. The numbers don't quite add up, but I think you can make it happen. It was a human judgment. And we just said, no, no, it's much more better. Like, you know, the <laughs> and the IT team got together and they were like, nope, the machines know much better. They're much better at judgment than you are. And that's simply not true because nothing digital is truth. Everything digital is a reflection of reality, a pale, flattened reflection of reality. And we just need to understand that. Mm. And we did understand. Mm. And this is where Africa, ironically, isn't at an advantage of the developed world when it comes to misinformation in this election cycle. And that is that if you actually look at trust in technology, I know the last time I looked at this was a few years ago, there was like a project with Visa where we looked at this. But people in Africa did not trust technology. They did not trust electronic payments. They did not trust electronic information. They wanted to see their banker in person. They wanted to see the product that they were buying in person. They didn't trust e-commerce and technology as much as people in the so-called weird West did, right, in the Americas and Europe and Australia and New Zealand and all those places. And that was seen by companies at that stage, a good like five-ish years ago, as being like a disadvantage for Africa, right? Like, you know, look at all these inefficiencies you're leaving behind, but that skepticism is going to serve you so well in this age of augmented everything and everything on demand. Oh, yes. Right? That's the 
correct attitudes we should have. You can't defer your judgment to a piece of technology, to a bit, a byte, a code, an algorithm. They can help you make faster choices. They can help you make more efficient processes. But judgment is a human thing that we have to rediscover for ourselves. And it's something we knew. In fact, it's something we fought against, trying to get people. Remember the resistance that like your grandmother had to using a computer? I don't trust that thing, you know? That was our initial yeah. response. And that was the right response. You don't have to trust it. was. You never had to trust it. You had to use it and understand that it was a tool. But you had to also understand that it was not your master. And that's the mistake we've made in a system. mistake we're going to have to unravel for ourselves now. No such thing as a trust. Mm. I'm sorry to my friends who work in the crypto or the blockchain space. That's the problem. The problem is that first link in the chain. How do you make sure mm. that's true? Not even mathematics has got to a true base level. You know, like <laughs> old Russell went through that, you know, and you read Godel Escher and you realize it's total. All of our assumptions are based on assumptions, are based on assumptions, assumptions, assumptions. The actual base truths are so, are so few and far between. And they also think that we can all intuit. You know, the things that you know. Yeah. Someone can tell you the sky is pink, but you can look out the side for yourself and decide that it's blue. You ju- you made that inference. And you had a choice to believe them or to believe someone that's telling you that something doesn't sound right over yourself. And I think we have to give ourselves permission to trust ourselves over figures of authority. And this is such a great lesson for everyone. It's, such a, it's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. Just don't trust technology. Use it, but understand. It to lies. enable you. Yeah. It lies. It's not, I, I, it's not true. I'm so and that's, mm. that's, the, that's the advantage, and that's what where we have to get to. But unfortunately, we kind of have to get through these curves before we get to them. These are not yes. things that can be solved with regulation or be solved, as some of my clients say, when I try to talk to them about this and they roll their eyes and say, oh, no, there's other technology that can spot a deep fake, deep fake, and then there's more technology that will make a better deep fake, and there's more technology that can spot it. But still, there's lag effects and all the rest of it. All of this is solved by simply understanding nothing digital is true. Some of it is useful. Digital is, I love we can see it, the same thing like a map is to the territory. The map is not the territory. Some maps are useful, you know, for certain things. Just yeah. see that as digital, any evidence, whether it's video, text, whatever, it's a map to reality. It might be a map that's been laid into being a trap. It might be a, a map that leads you to treasure, it, but it's not a complete picture of reality and you cannot outsource judgment. And that's such a critical lesson for leaders, for young people, whether you're trying to outsource judgment as to who to date with or who to hire to a machine. You're making a mistake if you're using like a CV screening software to pick out the best candidate when it's much better. You've got to work with this person. You've got to get along. You should be in judgment. You should be using your individual bias because guess what? They've also got to like you too if that relationship is going to work. Just because some code said this was the better person doesn't mean you can subtract your judgment. And when it comes to analyzing deep fakes, assume anything that you see on social media to be entertaining, but so with people, assume them to be innocent until proven guilty. With code, assume it to be guilty or flawed or accidentally broken until it has proven itself otherwise. We don't really I love this. Machines. This is amazing. We don't owe machines loyalty or trust. We absolutely do not. And to think machines weren't actually actually inspired by us. Just well, to just to point they that out. They 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 too. They, they too. <laughs> so we are the ultimate us. currency. <laughs> I wouldn't enslave Some of my friends in the, the robot ethics thing say, oh, no, you can't enslave machines. What if they become intelligence? And now you've just started and perpetuated a new, a new sense of crime against intelligent beings. I still don't have to trust them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. But you know what? Well, Eid code was corrupted because we are corrupted. We are corrupted individually. We're all broken in different ways. 
So our biases, and I think our, our biases are contained when we keep them at a human level. Yeah. So our sphere of influence, whereas biases or fake news, but it put into digital code can travel very far. So that's why it's much more dangerous to believe something that is, that is digitally that's true is untrue or see something that is mm. untrue as being true to get that wrong at a digital scale and still believe it, whether that's wrong because it's wrong or wrong because it's right, you know, it doesn't really matter. That's why uh, we've got to sort of humanize our trust failures down to, down to a smaller scale. I mean, then things will break in small places, not in big places. I totally agree with you. You know, on the one hand, you know, you see some technologies, like I think Intel did something amazing where they said, how do we know if it's a real human being that's actually busy here? And they actually said the one thing that makes us human is our blood. So what they're doing is, it's like when you're online and you're doing transactions or anything like that, it filters to see if there's actually blood flowing in your face and how you, your emotions. Now, I, I think it's a clever, it's clever, but it's not going to last long because for every innovation, a new problem is created. Yes, yeah, so you can so, the code. Someone can just write a patch to mimic exactly. those senses. And those not, things. It's like that movie with, what, what, what was his name? Um... Robin Williams, when he was the robot and he became so humanized and it's like, maybe that's what's going to happen is they're going to start putting blood inside the, like synthetic blood inside of the robot so that they can start appearing more human, like, oh God knows. But I mean, this is the thing too, you know, like maybe maybe it goes both ways (laughs) as we human. Oh my God. Like it's crazy. But I think for me, the, the big thing that I'm also taking away from this is the importance of spiritual intelligence in the time that we're living in is to be able to be in touch with your intuition because that's ultimately your GPS. Um, And if you have the compass and the map, you know, you can go into the direction where things feel right for you. And I think intuition, um, we need to start really practicing. It's so underrated and we get told we shouldn't make decisions from our gut or decisions from our intuition, which I also feel is, is so wrong. But anyway, I think this was an amazing conversation. I have to tell you, I've learned a lot. We're like, we're like open some windows and quite close them. You can. Oh, we, we, we always like that. I mean, I don't think we've ever had a conversation where we just go, it's like, there's so many squirrels running around here at the moment. You know, my friend, choose one, catch it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What topic are we going to talk about now? My friend always, um, I have an, um, one of my friends, Leslie, she always says to me, Carmen, bring the squirrel back. Come, come, bring the squirrel back. Oh, no, I'll just, I'll, my I'll thoughts interrupt. <laughs> well, we're going to circle back. Let's use the ultimate buzzword. We are going to circle back. And to finish off this interview, we're going to ask you to tell us what we as conscious leaders or lead hers, especially as women, um, need to pay attention to um, for this election um, at, uh, time time frame and how you would advise us going forward? I think the most important thing any leader can do at this point is to show leadership. And one of the things, because we don't have any leaders, that's, that's the first thing, right? We've got 200 <laughs> political parties in South Africa and none of them are like exciting you know to, to to many voters i mean some voters are obviously excited about some of those choices but a lot of a lot of people like 200 different appetizers and i don't feel like any of that but what our job as leaders is is to help people understand like what you're saying at the beginning of this conversation that if you don't use your vote even for your least offensive of all options that you don't like option 
someone else's vote is going to have a higher than one for one weighting because that's how mathematics works, right? And the chances of somebody else voting on your behalf, getting your choice right, are very, very limited. So yes, the menu is limited. It is unperfect. But the whole point of democracy is that you have to participate in it. And here's the bigger challenge. Like if all of those options are so completely unappetizing, what options are you adding to the menu, right? That's leadership. Ah, ah, you see, now that's what I love. So where can people get hold of you? Yeah, at Flux Trends, F-L-U-X-T-R-E-N-D-S dot com. Or you can find me with my name, that's Bronwyn Williams, on all the major social platforms. I think it's all, all of them is just like it's spelled there on the screen. Why are you not running for president, if I may ask? <laughs> I think I think I'm better in my role as a prophet, right? Like as soon as you get the particular cross, you become less useful to giving context, right? It's the same reason why we're such terrible business people in the business that we are, right? Like where we're terrible mm. capitalists. It's because as soon as you have an investment or stake in a particular industry, your lens becomes biased towards that and we stop being useful as global foresight trend scanning entities. You know, we have to Mm. to remain in the world, but not of it. And I think that's what Dion Chang and myself, we have in common, despite we come from very different backgrounds, very different ages. What we have in common is that we've always identified ourselves as being professional outsiders, which again, many people find quite like distressing, but we, we have embraced that role. Like someone has to be the observer, you know, like someone has to watch and help you contextualize. But much like the referee getting in and playing the ball, as soon as they kick the ball, like then, then they're no longer use, useful as a, as a referee or as an observer. No, observer I totally agree. Ball. But that's, that's uh, my general answer for why yeah. I'm, I'm a failure at business and politics. <laughs> yeah, I must say that um, I said to my husband before coming into this interview, it's like, I don't really like to talk about politics, but I'm going to have to push myself into having this conversation. It's the, the place where I feel the safest to have this conversation is with you because I got a lot of death threats when I was doing the ethnography project um, and people telling me they know where I live. Blah, 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 blah. It was quite insane. So... <laughs> Um, but anyway, um, from my perspective, it's always such a pleasure talking to you, connecting with you, um, having these real conversations and, and really just talking about this idea of really also just relying on your own, on your own self to make choices. And, you know, we all have got foresight intelligence. We just need yeah. to develop it more. And it is, it's tapping back into, our own intuitions. I mean, for me, yes. I think numerology and studying numerology has changed my life. And, uh, you know, you, through numbers, you can also see where the future is going. Um, and I think that has also given me a very interesting perspective. But I think when you hear that and like what, if you hear the, the spiritual side of things and, and so forth and you and you you blend it with the things that you are bringing to the table, then it's like the mind goes, Boom! Because now you can see everything is interconnected and there is so many things that needs to be worked on, but just bringing it back to self, but not be too selfish about it and, and leaning into that polarities. Yeah, you can mm. find it. The answers are within yourself. They're not out there, right? Just like your identity mm. is within you. You know, it's not, it's not you. It's within you. It's not, it's not the, the fragments of yourself that you've left across the internet and neither are anyone else's. So those are all, those are all pale puppet mirrors of, of reality. Just uh, accept that and then you can enjoy the show, right? 
<laughs> exactly. Enjoy the show. Well, listen, if we, if we got, if I ask you one more question, then what's going to happen is we're going to start a new interview. So I'm just going to stop. <laughs> uh, Listeners. To all of you, thank you so much for listening to to this conversation. And please follow Bronwyn Williams. She is a powerhouse. She knows her shit. And she's a beautiful human being inside out. And let's come together and let's see how we can be audacious inside out and change the system. If you don't like what's happening around you, think of ways of how you can change it. It all starts with one single step forward and then it starts evolving. Just put the energy there and then it will start evolving. Anyway, that's it from me. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye, Bronnie. Bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.